Thank you for being here. If it's uh, your first time or your first time in a while, uh, great Sunday for you to hop in because we are starting a brand new series that we are calling, you guessed it, Belief in the Age of Skepticism. And the purpose of this series is remarkably simple. I just want to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith. That's it. And so if you're here today and you're already a Christian, uh, the goal of this series is that through it, you would have um, greater confidence in what you believe than you have ever had before. And if you're, you're, you're tuning in and you, and you find yourself um, joining us throughout this series, my hope is that through this series, you would find the truth of Christianity more plausible than you ever have before. And so for this series, which is slated to run us uh, nine weeks, we're going to be loosely following the outline of something called the Apostles' Creed, which is actually the oldest summary of biblical doctrine that we have and if you were raised in kind of a more uh, traditional religious environment, you're probably pretty familiar with it. There's a chance you even had to memorize it. And if, you, if that's you, then you know that the Apostles' Creed starts with two words. Those words are, I believe. And so here today on the, on the front end of a, um, a series all about belief in the age of skepticism, I thought that was a great place to start with the concept of belief itself. So when we start talking about, you know, beliefs and specifically Christian beliefs, which obviously this is going to center on, I, I think maybe for the first time ever, we're in a culture where the first thought that comes to a lot of people's minds is, why bother? Because we live in a culture where um, fewer and fewer people seem to be believing. I mean, in, in the West specifically, we have statistics every year that say, um, more and more people are saying, I don't believe in God. Uh, I don't have religious beliefs. I don't even have a religious preference. We actually call those people the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's, and apparently they're one of the fastest growing, growing gro groups um, in the West. And, and, and maybe, you know, for some of you, that's, um, you know, where you're coming from. And so the question is, um, what is the future of Christianity in a culture and in an age in which it seems like fewer and fewer people are believing? I guess the question is, what is the future of belief in the age of skepticism? And one of the ways that you can answer that question is by turning to Acts chapter 17. Because in Acts 17, what you'll find is that a man named Paul, who was a religious terrorist, who converted to Christianity himself in very dramatic fashion, uh, brought his Christian faith um, out into the public square in the city of Athens. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you may know that Athens was actually the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, and therefore the intellectual capital really of the world in Paul's day. It was famous as a place where the philosophers no longer really believed in the gods. It was highly intellectual. It was highly skeptical. And if any of that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's remarkably similar to the culture that you and I find ourselves living in right now. Uh, in fact, you might find this interesting, but a number of sociologists have pointed out that in a lot of ways, the culture that we are in uh, and, and steadily becoming is remarkably, it, it bears a striking resemblance to the culture of the Roman Empire that the early church um, was born and, and rose to prominence in. And so I say all that to say, when we look at the way that Paul presented Christianity to that culture, uh, what we'll find is that it's remarkably relevant to us even living these 2,000 years later. And so I want to um, I want to read this this episode to you. It's found in Acts chapter 17, um, verses 16 to 34. I'll read that on the front end, so we all have access to what we're talking about, and then we'll get into it. <clears throat> Acts chapter 17, verse 16. 
It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Oropagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of, for what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Oropagus and said, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring." Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he's set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he's appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. <clears throat> so there's really just, there's a ton of things to see here, but there's really just three things that, that um, I want to draw out from this passage in the short amount of time that we have together today. Uh, and that is, first off, that um, everyone believes and secondly, that Christianity is the belief system that can satisfy uh, not only our minds, but also our hearts. And so with that, I want to kick off our series uh, with our main idea today, which is very simply this. Uh, we all have a belief system. We all have a belief system. You see this uh, in verse 22 when Paul begins his message in the Areopagus. Very first thing he says is, Men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. What he's saying is, first and foremost, let's lay this groundwork. You all are very religious. Now, for modern people reading this today, I, I think that the, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, of course they were very religious and very superstitious and all that back then. Because Paul's talking to people living in a pre-scientific age with very little understanding of the world around them. So they believed in things like a god of the sea and a god of thunder and a god of basically everything that you could think of. Yeah, naturally, they were religious then, but, you know, we've moved past that because we know so much more than they do. And so, you know, belief and superstition is, and, and, and religion is dying out. Um, <clears throat> this might surprise you. <coughs> 
But I actually believe that if Paul were alive today and he was sent as a missionary into the modern, you know, secular West, the culture that we live in, I actually think he would, he would say the same exact thing to us, that we are all deeply religious, maybe not in a formal sense, maybe not in the way that we think the Athenians were, but in the sense very simply that, that every human being um, by default holds to deeply religious, completely unprovable beliefs. So, so the question is, how would Paul make his case? Let me, let me kind of take a, um, a, a stab at that. If you've been at this church for any length of time, you have probably heard me use a, a really famous, um, pardon me, it's a really brilliant quote from a famous author. His name's David Foster Wallace. Um, I've used this quote so many times I kind of accidentally have most of it memorized. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism, uh, pardon me, atheism, and this guy was not a Christian himself. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what are we going to worship? And what he meant with that word worship is that every human being cannot help but orient their life around something that they look to to give them ultimate meaning and purpose and satisfaction and significance and all those kinds of things, and he's 100% right. The human heart cannot help uh, but look to something that um, is going to make my life worth living. The only question is, do you and I know ourselves enough to know what that thing is? Because whatever that thing is, functionally, that's your God. And the life that you've built around that, functionally, that's your religion. And so at least in that sense, yeah, all of us are, are religious. But I'm actually going to come at this from a, from a, a different angle, um, maybe a little bit more of an intellectual angle today, because I think this is helpful. Um, I, I would just ask you to consider that one thing that we all have in common regardless of, of the particular expression of faith we claim or whether, whether we claim to have no faith at all, that every single one of us has to go through life on the basis of answers to certain questions. We have to do this. Questions, you're probably wondering, what questions? Questions like the following. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What are we doing here? What's wrong with this world? What would make this world right? And by the way, how do you determine right and wrong uh, from each other anyway. Who gets to do that and on what basis? Even if you've never sat down and written out your answers to those questions, everyone uh, has an answer to those questions, and we conduct our lives according to the answers to those questions. And, And my point in saying that is very simply that however you answer those questions, your answers are nothing more than deeply religious, completely unprovable beliefs. Let me give you one example. Take the first question that I pointed out. Where did we come from? Um... You can believe that a divine being brought the material world and and all that we experience into existence. I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of us believe that. Uh, But, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you can believe that the material world came into existence completely on its own. And there's about a billion different shades of belief in between those two poles. But the point is, wherever you land on your answer to just that one question, your answer is nothing more than a deeply religious, completely unprovable belief. And the reason I wanted to start the whole series with this idea that we all are a people of belief, we all have a belief system, is because we're living in, um, for the first time ever, we're living in a secular culture. Now, simply because you're going to hear me, I didn't do this at the 9 a.m., but simply because you're going to hear me use that term so often, let me just go ahead and define that. What is a secular culture? I'm actually, um, 
I'm reading a book right now by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age, which is not the easiest read, but it has been helpful. And he defines what a secular culture is marked by. He says, a secular culture is a culture in which um, belief in God is seen simply as one option among many other options, and frequently it's not even the easiest option to embrace. That's where our culture is today in what is called, you know, the the modern or the late modern West. And what's interesting is no culture like that in human history has ever existed. What I mean is prior to basically us, people have always believed in gods or, or a god. Who those gods were has always varied. What they required has always varied, but people have always believed in that. For the first time ever, we find ourselves in a culture in which an increasing number of people are, are beginning to believe, I don't believe in God at all anymore. And, and so with that, what, what uh, experts have pointed out is that secular people are the first people to believe that they don't have beliefs. Uh, which simply isn't true. And I just want to give you two examples of this. Let's just say, um, say you're listening to this and, and, and you would call yourself an atheist or, or an agnostic or, or kind of something along those lines. Um, maybe you're, you're someone who would say, you know, I'm not a person of faith. I'm, I'm not a person of, you know, religious belief. I just, I go where the evidence leads. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, more intellectual, more rational, more reasonable. Uh, that, that's how I live my life. If I can, I just want to offer to you that I really don't think it's that simple for any of us. And let me just give you maybe two examples to explain why, why I think that way. First off, most secular people would say, actually I think all secular people would say, uh, that they don't believe in God or an afterlife. You know, to be secular is to basically believe that there is no God, there's no supernatural reality. So secular people would say, I don't believe that there's a God and I don't believe that there's an afterlife. The question is, uh, can you prove either of those uh, uh, beliefs? And the answer is, you know, of course not. Of course, you cannot prove that there's no God who will hold you and I accountable for the life that we live or an afterlife after this one, which will largely be determined by how we live here. And so the belief that there's no God and no afterlife is at bottom simply that. It's a belief. And so to believe that means that, that in, in a number of ways, you're, you're just as much a person of faith as someone who arrives at the opposite conclusion that there is a God and there is an afterlife. And I understand that argument in and of itself certainly does not bring you into Christianity. It's just meant to kind of put you on to the idea that we're all sort of betting our lives to a degree on this. That, that argument is, uh, I think it's decent, but, but um, let me offer you secondly, maybe one that's a little bit more, um, a little more robust, a little stronger. Um, specifically in our culture, this is really one of the hallmarks of what you see is that uh, secular people believe in human, human rights. In other words, the, the idea that, that uh, we actually have a responsibility as a society to work for uh, the equality and the protection and even the betterment of um, those who are you know, poor and vulnerable and have the least amount of power in the eyes um, of society. Most secular people would, would agree with that. Like I said, it's, it's really kind of one of the hot button issues in our culture today. Let me just ask the question, why would you believe that? If, if that's what you believe, and, and obviously I hope you believe that, why do you believe that? Um, ask, uh, you know, according to a secular worldview, if you were to ask someone where humanity came from, probably the most common answer you'll hear is that mankind um, has evolved uh, through purely natural processes, you know, marked by the survival of the fittest, the strong eating the weak. However, now we have to stop that. Now, 
uh, you know, stronger nations, stronger people groups, stronger races, stronger individuals, whatever it is, must not trample on those who are weaker than them. And so even though according to nature, the strong actually have a responsibility to eliminate the weak for the betterment of the species as a whole, now we who have come from nature, have a responsibility to do the exact opposite of that and instead uh, uplift and work for the betterment of the weak. And, and so I say that to say um, you can believe that, and I certainly hope that you believe that because the opposite of that is pretty horrifying. Um, but if you do, you know, to pull that value out of that understanding of the universe really is nothing more than a leap of faith. And so my, my point in this first move on the front end of this nine-week series is simply to put you and I onto the idea that no matter where you're coming from, you know, a, a, as you dial in today, um, no matter what faith you claim, or even if you claim to have no faith at all, that every one of us at bottom, at our core, we navigate through life holding on to deeply religious, completely unprovable beliefs. That's where Paul essentially begins uh, his presentation of Christianity in Athens, and I think it's where we need to begin today. Now, you know, having laid that foundation, the question that I think most naturally arises out of that understanding is, okay, well, where does that actually leave us? Um, meaning, if, if we all have uh, different understandings of the world or worldviews that we're operating out of, how are we supposed to make any progress? And really, I think this is one of the greatest challenges of our culture today. Uh, because one of, if not the main reason that there is so much turmoil and there is so much division in the world you know, that we live in right now is because everyone is operating from wildly different understandings of the world or worldviews. And so they're kind of just you know, yelling at each other or trying to dunk on each other in the public sphere or talking past each other, whether that's left versus right and, and you know, more traditionalist versus more modernist and all that kind of stuff. So the question is, how, how can any society make any kind of progress when there's so much variance about where we're even forming our, our ideas from? And actually, Paul uh, gives us a great answer here. Because back in verse 17, I don't know if you caught this, but we're told that when Paul entered into the city of Athens, uh, it, it's, a, um, it's a specific word that's used here. We're told that Paul reasoned with people in the synagogue and in the marketplace. That Greek word translated reasoned is the word dialogomai. Uh, it's, a, it's a very specific word. It's, it has a very specific meaning, and it's really important for all of us to understand. What this word is teaching us is that when Paul interacted with people, who had a deeply different worldview than his own, uh, he did not simply preach at them. Meaning Paul did not, you know, waltz into the center of Athens, the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, and kind of stand on a street corner and say, I have the truth, uh, you guys are all deceived, I'm right, you're wrong, you better listen to me, you know, kind of turn or burn sort of thing. Um, that's not what that word means. Dialogomai means to enter into a dialogue with somebody in a very specific way. And so what this means, I think this is especially important for Christians, is that as Christians, if your mindset is, okay, well, I'm just going to tell people who have a widely different viewpoint than me, you know, this is the truth. This is what God says. This is what the Bible says. What you're going to find is that is deeply ineffective. Paul knew that. Uh, which is why he didn't do that. You know, just beating people with a different worldview over the head with, with your understanding of the truth uh, historically 
gains very little ground. Paul knew that, so he didn't do that. And so instead, he does this thing um, called dialogomai. And dialogomai refers to the Socratic method, which is named for Socrates. Um, so here's how this works. The Socratic method be- begins by saying, okay, let's acknowledge that you and I have wildly different worldviews, wildly different understanding of what's right and what's wrong, if there even is a right and wrong, just totally different understandings of, of the reality that, that we live in. Let's begin by simply acknowledging that. And the Socratic method requires me, instead of simply criticizing your understanding of, of reality, Uh, on the basis of my understanding reality, which will get us nowhere, the Socratic method requires me to enter into your worldview really until I understand you, until I can see the world the way that you see the world and can state your beliefs in a way that you would say, that's exactly right, that's what I believe. This is, first off, something that almost nobody in our culture does ever or even attempts to do anymore because it's really difficult. It requires a whole lot of listening. It requires a whole lot of time. That's why Scripture actually says Paul did this daily. Every day Paul was reasoning in the synagogue and in the marketplace, meaning he was doing just as much listening to how the Athenians thought as he was explaining how he thought. And it's only after you dig into that person's worldview that you then critique their worldview, but not from your vantage point, from their own vantage point. Meaning the Socratic method requires you to enter into somebody's worldview and point out the inconsistencies within that worldview. Point out how it fails on its own basis, by its own standards, how it fails to live up to its own expectations. That's exactly what Paul does here in his message to the Oropagus. And if you study how Paul presents Christianity, it's really strategic that Paul presents Christianity as a belief system that can satisfy both our minds and our hearts at the same time. And you and I need that as much as as the people in Athens 2,000 years ago did. Meaning, if we all move through life with a belief system, then the most pressing need that we have is a belief system that satisfies both our minds and and our hearts. C.S. Lewis, who I quote all the time, he was an intellectual juggernaut, an atheist before he himself converted to Christianity. He once famously said... He said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun, not only because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. And his point was that Christianity helped him make sense of what he saw in the world like no other belief system could, like his own previous atheistic worldview couldn't and no other system of faith could. And and I say that to say, you need that. You need a belief system that does not require you to dumb down your intellect and exercise blind faith And I have really good news. Christianity will never require you to do that. It satisfies the mind. I'll get to that in just a second. But right along with that, you and I also need a belief system that can satisfy our hearts, meaning not just a belief system that helps us make sense of what we find out there, but of what we find within ourselves, one that will not require us to dumb down the needs of our hearts, our need for, for identity, for purpose, for meaning, for a hope that goes beyond the walls of this world. We need a belief system that can do both of those things. So Paul presents Christianity as this, as this belief system uh, that, that really alone, uniquely, can satisfy both our minds and our hearts, um, and that's going to frame um, both of the ideas that we have in, in our remaining uh, time together. So secondly, I want to offer, uh, offer this idea to you. Uh, number two, Christianity is a belief system that can satisfy our minds. <clears throat> we see this in this address uh, at the Oropagus because the first thing that Paul does here is he basically points out 
uh, the inadequacies of the worldview that the Athenians held to. And you see this in verse 23. <clears throat> he says, um, For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found uh, an altar which, is, which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, what, what, what Paul is basically saying here is, is he's, he's walked around Athens, he spent some time there, he saw, you know, they have these different statues and these temples and these altars, and then he saw this, this almost catch-all altar, which was basically the, in case we missed one, let's hope this satisfies that God kind of thing. What Paul is saying here is this, this altar to the unknown God, that in and of itself is evidence that you know your worldview is inadequate. You wouldn't have an altar to a God that maybe you kind of thought was there, but you, know, just, you don't have that if you're, if you're positive that your worldview is correct and, and you know, answers every question that you have about reality. So Paul saw that as proof uh, that they knew their own worldview it was inadequate. In other words, he, he saw that altar as proof that you know, at least part of you knows that there's a God out there, even if you can't quite identify who he is. So I want to be really um, clear about what Paul's actually doing here. He's not entering into Athens and saying, I'm here to prove to you that God exists. Paul's argument is, I'm here to prove that you already, at least part of you, already knows that because you're accidentally living like that and it's simply incoherent for you not to admit that. So here's the question. What would Paul look at as our culture's altar to the unknown God? It's a, it's a question worth asking. If Paul was here today, he employed the same technique with us. It, 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 it begs the question, what would Paul point to in our culture and say, you know what, that right there, that is evidence that you're sensing that there is a God, even if you're not ready to identify him and worship him as God. And I think, I think Paul would have a field day with our culture, and, and I have a... I'm reasonably certain that I know where he would go to. I think what he'd look at is our values and our sense of moral obligation. I kind of touched on this earlier. So let me give a modern example of this. About a year and a half ago, I heard a story about a woman who was a cultural anthropologist who was studying African culture. <clears throat> and while she was over there, she was, she was really troubled with the way that she saw women being treated. And so she brought that up to some of the cultural authority figures and, and the answer that she got back was, very plainly, hey, don't you dare try, come over here trying to impose your white, Western, individualistic um, values on us. Mind your business. This is how we do things. You have no right to tell us how you think we should be doing things. And so, obviously, their response was really troubling to her, and she wrote an article about it. And in the article... Uh, you know, she, she talked about how she herself did not believe in God. You know, she was, a, she was a secular person herself. And with that, she also believed that there was no moral law. I mean, if there's no lawgiver, then she knew, okay, that there's no moral law imposed on humanity from a, you know, a higher uh, sense of authority that we have to kind of subjugate ourselves to. She didn't believe in any of that stuff, uh, which meant that she knew she had to come to terms with reality. Wait a minute, these people are right. That she had strong opinions about what was right and what was wrong. Th these people had strong opinions about, about what was right and what was wrong, and she knew at the end of the day she had absolutely no right to impose her beliefs on their beliefs. No reason. It was nothing more than Western imperialism to try to impose your understanding of values on another culture's understanding of values. And so what she started to wrestle with is what I believe um, is the tension that, that secular people in the modern West are faced with if they're willing to admit it. And, and, and here's what I mean. Modern people, this is, again, one of the hallmarks of our society, modern people believe that truth is person-specific. 
person-specific, meaning there is no moral law that we're, we, all have to, we all have to align ourselves with. Right? Instead, modern people believe that truth is relative, and it's up to the individual to determine what's right and what's wrong for myself. And what's right or wrong for me might not be right or wrong for you, and neither one of us has any right to impose you know, our, our view of reality on anyone else. But if, if I can for a minute here just walk through that, within that framework, what you quickly realize is that no one now has any right to tell anyone that they're wrong about anything ever. And so what that means is you can say, I would really prefer it if you didn't do that thing that you're doing because I have really strong opinions about it. But what you can't say is what you are doing is wrong because now you're appealing to some source of authority that doesn't exist according to your own worldview. That's where this woman was. The problem with that is the human heart knows. You don't need to be taught this. The human heart knows. Your heart knows when it sees certain behavior that what you're witnessing is wrong, regardless of how many people in a culture might say that it's right. Can I give you some examples here? You know pedophilia is wrong. You know rape is wrong. You know the strong taking advantage of the weak is wrong. You know when, when you see documentaries or movies or read books about North American chattel slavery where people were treated like property, there's something in you that, that says that's wrong. When you look at Auschwitz, you see the systematic elimination of a people group from the human race simply because of who they were. There's something that rises up within the human heart that says, it, you don't look at that and say, I would really prefer if people didn't treat themselves that way because that doesn't seem like the best case scenario for our survival. That's ridiculous. The human, the human heart knows when it sees things like that, that it is bearing witness to a violation of a moral order that has been imposed on us from something higher than us. But I say all that to say, you take God out of that and you lose that entirely. When you take God out of that, all we're left with is my opinions about what's right and wrong versus your opinions about what's right and wrong with neither of us having any right to say my opinion's more valid than yours or vice versa. That's exactly where this woman found herself. She was intellectually honest to know she was dead to rights, but she concluded her article by saying, even though it's inconsistent within my own framework, to try to do this, I'm going to continue to fight for women's rights in Africa. And that's how the article ended. And what, what Paul would say to that woman is the same thing I believe he'd say to, to, to people in the modern secular West today. He was saying that, that desire uh, you know, to see human rights realized, that desire to end oppression, that desire to stand up for the, for, for the vulnerable, and, and, you know, however that manifests itself, that is your own personal altar to your own unknown God. Because there's something in you that senses, no, there is a law that's been imposed on us by a lawgiver. There's something in you that knows that yeah, truth isn't really relative. Nobody can actually live like that. And, and that intuition that the human heart knows, that makes most sense within the context of a Christian worldview. Why? Because Christianity teaches that every man, woman, and child that you ever interact with has been created and stamped with the image of God on them. That and that alone makes sense of why we know human rights are a thing, and to violate that is to violate a natural order, because we've been imprinted with the image of God, and therefore every human being has intrinsic value, worth, and dignity that no one and nothing can take away. And so what Paul is saying, first off, is here's a belief system that helps you make sense of what you already most deeply, intuitively know. Here's a belief system that can satisfy your mind. Here's Christianity. All right, that, that in and of itself, I, I think is a, it's a rational argument. I think it's a strong argument. But all that is in and of itself is an intellectual apologetic for, for at least for deism, but, but I think even for Christianity. 
But Paul goes even further than that. And what he does before he's done with, with, with Athens is he also offers them an emotional apologetic. This is going to be our final idea during our time together. If you could just lean into this last thing. I know I threw about five teachings worth of content at you, but this is our last idea today. Just stick with me. Number two, Christianity is also a belief system that can satisfy our hearts. Now, the reason that Christianity can do this, and again, I want to offer in a way that no other belief system can, is through something called the doctrine of the resurrection, which is what Paul gets to at the very end of his address before he gets cut off. And it's, it's really interesting to note here that people called Paul, different versions of the Bible translate this differently, but in, in my version of the Bible, the people in Athens that day called Paul a pseudo-intellectual. Now that, I don't know what that sounds like to you, it's actually a pretty devastating thing to be labeled as in the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire. You know, you're not having a great day after that happens. And truth be told, Paul's time in Athens was, it was basically a failure. I mean, he's mocked publicly. He's kind of driven out of the Oropagus. Only really a handful of people become believers. But what's so interesting is that just a few generations later, no one would ever worship those Greek gods again. Uh, Meanwhile, the Roman Empire itself would go on to declare the truth of Christianity. And so what we see when we zoom out historically is that in just about 300 years, Christianity transformed the Roman Empire, and here we are 2,000 years later, and billions of people are still every year celebrating the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So a handful of generations after this address, it transformed an empire. 2,000 years later, what we can see is it's transformed the world. Now that begs the question, why? And according to a lot of theologians and historians, the reason for that primarily is because of this thing called the doctrine of the resurrection. Because when Christians began to teach, when they began to understand what it meant that Jesus had been resurrected for them, and they began to teach that to people, that lit people's hearts on fire because it satisfied the needs of the human heart in a way that no other belief system could in that day. I don't know if you noticed this when we were reading through it, but there were basically two groups of people that were present that day when Paul was kind of sparring in the marketplace. You had the, the, uh, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans. If you know anything about ancient Near Eastern philosophy, you know, I'm sure you know something about them. But the Stoics were, were basically a group of people that said, and this is funny to me because it's, I think it's broadly how people can still be categorized today. Stoics were a group of people that said, when suffering comes, you just need to grin and bear it. You know, rein your emotions in. Um, stiff upper lip kind of thing. Don't get too attached to anything in this world. You're eventually going to lose it all. And if you live well, then at the end of this life, your soul will continue on in a sort of impersonal existence as you become one with the all soul of the universe, basically is what Stoicism taught. Epicureans, on the other hand, uh, did not believe in an afterlife at all. And so they believed you should run from suffering as fast and far as you can because the primary purpose in life is to maximize your happiness and your satisfaction while you're here. So you had two groups of people. One's trying to save themselves. The other one's trying to satisfy themselves. That sounds a lot like the way you could categorize people in our culture today. You know, the Stoics are more like the kind of traditional religious conservatives then the Epicureans are a little bit more like the kind of more modernist, liberal, irreligious people. But, but what people point out is that the average person alive in Paul's day found that neither one of those approaches to life really worked. You know, the, the fatal flaw with a stoic philosophy of life in which you're trying to just, you know, muscle through suffering uh, is, is that that sounds fine on paper until something brings you to the end of yourself. And I, if I can be the bearer of bad news, something's eventually going to bring you to the end of you. 
even if by some miracle you manage to navigate through this life without experiencing any major tragedy, you're eventually going to have to deal with your own mortality in a belief system that says just grin and bear it is not going to work when you're dying. That's what people found. You know, in, in, a, in a similar vein, the Epicurean philosophy where you're going through life trying desperately to satisfy yourself, what, you know, the Achilles heel of that is that anybody who's ever gone through life that way knows that the best way to make sure you're never satisfied is to live only for your own satisfaction. Very paradoxical, but everybody eventually finds that out. And so neither one of those approaches to life work, but then Christianity enters into that, uh, and, 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 you know, whereas um, Stoicism created this coldness and Epicureanism created this kind of emptiness, Christianity entered in and, and it lit people on fire. It changed their lives forever. It changed the whole culture because it satisfied the deepest needs of the heart in a way no other belief system did then or has since. And the primary way it does that is through the doctrine of the resurrection. We're almost done. Please just lean into this last part. Even a, this is something that I feel like I'm beginning to learn more and more myself. Even a belief system, even a religion that offers you heaven after this life, which, hey, a lot of belief systems do. Buddhism offers you that. Hinduism offers you that. Islam offers you that, to name a few. Um, Even a religion that offers you heaven after this life is, is really at bottom just offering you a consolation for the life that you've lost. Meaning it's almost like God saying, I'm really sorry about how bad life was, but here's this you know, this blissful paradise place you can float around in. And maybe if you spend enough time here, it'll make up for all the ungrieved losses and the unfulfilled desires that you had in your one trip around the block that we call life. But when Christians came along and they started talking about the resurrection, they started talking about this thing that was grounded in the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that hundreds of eyewitnesses all said, we saw the same thing. They're dying for this belief rather than denying it. When people heard what the resurrection was actually promising, they knew that whatever Christianity was, it was different than anything they'd ever heard before. Because the resurrection, through the resurrection, God is not offering you a consolation for the life that you've lost. The resurrection is the restoration of the life that you always wanted, but you never had. Meaning, however good we can make our lives on this side of eternity, we're, we're going to die with unfulfilled hopes and dreams. There's going to be regret. There's going to be pain. There's going to be loss because this world isn't enough for us. The resurrection is not saying, well, I'm sorry that that was bad, but here's heaven. It's saying, no, God's going to take you back to the beginning, and he's going to give you the life that you always wanted but never had in this sin-stained world so full of loss and pain and corruption. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you get everything back, and you get it back in a way that's better than you ever imagined it could be. The resurrection promises you're going to get the body that you always wanted but never had. It promises you're going to get the relationships you always wanted but never had. You're going, to get, you're going to get the life that you always wanted in the world that you always wanted but never had. That's the promise held out for people by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's the doctrine of the resurrection. And when people in the ancient Near East, in the Roman Empire, when they started to understand what this meant, then they, they began to believe, okay, well, if this is true... If, if all that Jesus has done for me and what it means for me, if that's true, then I can handle anything because the worst case scenario for my life is that I will die and be raised as he died and was raised for me. And as more and more men and women believe that, it perfectly explains why Christians alone stayed behind when plagues hit the ancient cities and everybody else fled. That's why, that belief is why Christians were able to stay behind and care for the sick and the dying, even at at the cost of their own lives. It's why when they were putting Christians to death publicly in the arenas, they were able to sing hymns and pray for their murderers. 
And it's why, you know, for, for, for generations until about 380 A.D. when all of Rome was transformed, people looked at these first followers of Jesus and they said, I want a belief system that allows me to handle suffering and pain and loss and my own mortality the way that these people do. I want a belief system that satisfies my heart. That's what Christianity does in a way that no other belief system ever will. I'm going to call the worship team up and we're, we're going to close with this. If I can end today just speaking to two groups of people. First off, if, if you're here today and you're already a Christian, I, what I would just offer you is that Paul provides an amazing model here because when Paul saw that ancient city of Athens so full of idolatry, Scripture says it troubled him, but instead of shying away from that, he ran right towards that uh, because he believed that Christianity had the intellectual and the emotional punching power to go toe-to-toe with the most dominant ideas of the most intellectual capital in, in the world. And he did that even knowing that he was going to be mocked, even knowing how much it was going to cost him. And it did cost him dearly. But Paul and those first followers of Jesus leaned into the cultures that God placed them in. They loved that ancient idolatrous city of Athens. And they loved that whole brutal Roman Empire until it changed. But simply because they were moved by the love of a Savior that it changed them. And I would love to see us become the kind of church that operates that way, a community with a posture of engagement toward the world around us, that we're not afraid to take our faith out into the marketplace because we really do believe this is the power of God unto salvation for those that believe. But secondly and lastly, and I'll close with this, if, if you're here today and you're skeptical to the truth claims of Christianity, which I hope more than anything else, a lot of people are because that's really who I'm hoping, you know, leans in for this series. If that's you, I just want to say, even if I don't know you, even if, I don't, even if I don't know what you believe, I know that you do believe. I know that you do have a belief system. And the question I hope you're willing to ask yourself at the end of this message is very simply, does your belief system have what it takes to satisfy both your mind and your heart? Because Christianity does. And maybe at the end of one 30-minute lecture, you're not ready to devote your whole life to this and you know, convert to Christianity, fine. But if you don't at least find yourself wanting to believe that this message is true, I don't think you've understood it yet. And if that's where you're coming from, I hope you come back. Because my conviction is that Christianity is worth devoting your entire life to. And I'd love to be able to show you why over the span of the next nine weeks. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you that Christianity does not require us to check either our minds or our hearts at the door of our faith. I want to thank you for a faith that can engage and bring health and bring life and bring healing to absolutely every aspect of our being, God. And I just would ask you, Father, that through these messages that I put together, I just want to ask that you do what only you can do, God. That for people who tune into this series that are already believers, that their faith would be stronger than it ever has been before. And for those that tune in that are not, that they would find the belief system known as Christianity more plausible than they've ever found it before. That they'd keep leaning in, that they'd stay curious, that they'd investigate. Because I st- <laughs> I'm going to go to my grave believing that what we're really looking for walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago and is standing at the right hand of the throne of God. It's Jesus Christ. God, please open somebody's eyes to it. In your name we pray, amen.